If you missed or you were not here last week, I began a short series on the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And last week, I was preparing a message, and it was going to be a three-part message, and then that first point turned into a whole sermon, and so that's what you got last week. This week, you're going to get the rest of it. And so the initial sermon outline I had put together was the Spirit's illuminating ministry to the believer, then the Spirit's sanctifying ministry to the believer, and the Spirit's comforting ministry to the believer. And I'm just briefly going to review what we went over last week, in case anyone missed that or wasn't here. And we'll walk through those three points. Okay, so the Spirit's illuminating ministry to believers. We looked at John 14.26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, the Parakletos, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And we talked about how the, the, the disciples were the direct recipients of this promise. And just to clarify all that, we are not the direct recipients of that promise. The Spirit is not uh, bringing to remembrance all that Jesus taught us because we weren't with Jesus walking and talking with Him, and so we haven't heard anything from Jesus. And so we're the indirect recipients of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He is no longer reminding us of what Jesus has said unless it's according to God's Word. He is reminding us and bringing to our minds what we know from Scripture, teaching us from Scripture. Again, a clarification from 1 Corinthians 2, 10-12 that we talked about, where Paul was talking about receiving the Spirit, uh, being revealed the hidden things of God. He's talking about the apostles there, not all of us. Paul's referring to himself, the other apostles. They were given the Spirit, and particularly the anointing to write down Scripture. And now the Spirit teaches and illumines us the truth through God's Word, not personal divine revelation. God doesn't speak to us individually and tell us where to go, what to do. That's what we have the Word of God for. The Scriptures are God's means that the Spirit uses to guide us into all truth. So that's what we talked about last week. So today we're going to begin getting into the Spirit's sanctifying ministry and then comforting ministry to us. All three persons of the Trinity are involved in our salvation and sanctification, as mentioned last week. And so if you're taking notes, this is going to be point one of two, the Spirit's sanctifying ministry to believers. And as I quoted from Peter Van Maastricht last week, he put it this way, he said, as far as economic office or the outworkings of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is, as it were, the emissary of the Trinity sent to bring about the things that have been decreed. He is bringing to completion the cause of human salvation, which the Father designed and the Son accomplished. And the completion, so the Spirit is bringing about the completion of our salvation, and the completion of our salvation comes with our total sanctification. Take your Bibles and flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to make some comments and read some verses while you go there, so don't think you're in the wrong place, but go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In sanctification, the Father decrees and calls us to it. It is accomplished in Christ, and it is the Spirit who completes it in us. 1 Thessalonians 4.7 says, For God has not called us to impurity, 
but he has called us in holiness. And that word for holiness is the same word often translated as sanctification. It's hagios. So the word holiness can often be translated or understood as the word sanctification. So God decreed and called us to sanctification and holiness. 1 Corinthians 1-2 says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So the, the Father calls us into sanctification. And according to 1 Corinthians 1-2, the saints are sanctified in Christ at the ta- time of salvation because we are united with Him, His death and resurrection and His righteousness. So God's called us to it. Christ accomplished it on the cross, and we see here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, the Spirit is the agent of our sanctification. He's the one working it out in us. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14 says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, by divine decree, the Spirit is the one who, as the emissary of God, completes and perfects our sanctification. He is the divine agent working in and through us, working out our sanctification, though all three persons of the Trinity are involved. The question is, when we say sanctification, what exactly are we talking about? Before we move on, I want to make sure you have an accurate picture of sanctification because it's, it's quite the complex subject in all its biblical depth. So I'm going to try and paint a fuller picture of sanctification for you so we can work off of that moving forward. In biblical doctrine, that big white book that we sell in the bookstore from the Master's Seminary, there is a table of information on page 362 and 363 that I used as I thought through this and condensed this down a little bit. So if you don't get all this written down, you can refer back to page 262 and 263 in that. And look, it took many centuries, centuries and centuries, and many faithful men to come to clarity on the subject of sanctification. And we stand on their shoulders. But this is the best way that I thought of describing sanctification in all of its complexity and beauty. Think of a diamond. Okay, think of a diamond and you're looking at this diamond and the diamond you're looking at has three faces that you can see. Okay, three faces. And each face there, each side of that, those three sides of that diamond, they have various facets as you go down the sides of the diamond. And that first row across the top there on those diamonds, those faces, you could think of it as past, present, and future. The three sides on that diamond, past, present, and future. Past, Acts 20, 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. The verb for sanctified there is perfect, indicating finished action with ongoing results. 
So it's describing an event that's complete. This refers to the past tense reality that when, when we were regenerated, there's a sanctifying work that takes place. For those who are saved, that is a past reality. We have been sanctified in Christ. There's also a present reality that we're being sanctified. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-4, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. So the Apostle Paul, he's clearly exhorting the Corinthians to presently live in a sanctified or holy manner. He's exhorting them to sanctification and holiness. Also Hebrews 12, 14. This is the legacy standard version. It says, pursue peace with all men and pursue sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. So we are to presently strive and pursue our own sanctification. Or as Paul put it in Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation. It is a present reality that's being worked out in us. And our sanctification is in process towards a future goal. you got past, present, and future. 1 Thessalonians 3.13 says, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. Again, that could be translated as sanctification. Blameless in sanctification before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. So we've got this past, present, and future. And you could put another row underneath that. Under past, present, and future, you have inauguration, continuation, and culmination. Inauguration. It began. Hebrews 10.10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So our sanctification began and it inaugurated in Christ's sacrifice for us once and for all. There's also a continuation aspect. 2 Corinthians 7.1 Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness or sanctification to completion in the fear of the Lord. So that continual cleansing of ourselves from defilement, it has a culmination in the future resurrection when Christ returns, as we already read 1 Thessalonians 3.13. Our sanctification culminates in the coming of Christ. We've got past, present, and future. You've got the inauguration, continuation, culmination. And a third row you can think of as position, progression, and perfection. Position refers to the past reality of our sanctification in Christ and that positionally we are sanctified. Hebrews 10.14 again, For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Our position before God for all time, is that we are sanctified or perfected. Positionally, we stand before God sanctified. It's talking about that past sanctification. And yet, as that verse also states, for by a single offering, He's been perfecting, He has perfected for all time those who are being saved. We have a position of sanctification, but it is also progressive. Those who are being saved saved, being sanctified. Romans 6.22 says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. 
So there's the idea of progression in that verse. Greater and greater fruit that ends in eternal life. So the believer's position before God is he is sanctified, but there's a progression in his sanctification and life that leads to a perfection in sanctification at the end of this life. So you've got past, present, future, inauguration, continuation, culmination, position, progression, and perfection. And I'll do one more row. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification, 1 Corinthians 6.11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So being washed, sanctified, justified, he's all referring to the same reality there. So sanctification can be used to refer to our past positional justification. A past declaration of our righteousness before God. It's a past forensic declaration that cannot change. You are righteous before God based on being in Christ Jesus. Found not with a righteousness of your own, but in Christ's righteousness. Having all your sin punished in Christ on the cross, receiving his righteousness, you then stand justified before God. So sanctification can be used to refer to our past justification before God. You have a past justification and then a sanctification. And sanctification here, again, refers to that present, progressive, continual reality. But it's progressing, not stagnant. And then glorification under that future perfection. 1 John 3, 2-3 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is, and everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. So these are all terms used to describe the same reality and events from different angles in order to encompass all the nuances of this word sanctification. So you've got this diamond, it's got the three sides, past, present, future, inauguration, continuation, culmination, position, progression, perfection, justification, sanctification, glorification. And it's also the past inauguration, positional justification before God. It's the present continuation, progression, sanctification, future culmination, perfection, glorification. It is this multifaceted diamond that is our salvation and sanctification. So why am I talking about all this? Why am I bringing this up? Why is this important? Well, one theology book says this about why this is so important to understand. It says, and I quote, in a very real sense, all theology And all Christian living can be discussed, developed, and discerned by studying and applying what the Bible says about sanctification. That's a very strong statement. All theology, all Christian living can be discussed and developed and discerned by studying and applying what the Bible says about sanctification. And that's because it refers to our past salvation. Everything in between until our glorification. 
That has to do with our entire life, everything to do with our life. And so studying that, all theology can be developed and discussed and discerned. All things pertaining to Christian living. So it is important. I just have a couple of responses as we look at this beautiful picture of our salvation and sanctification. There's a couple of responses we ought to have. First, it ought to cause us to marvel. Something as simple as the word sanctification gets multifaceted. It ought to cause us to marvel at our magnificent, splendid, and glorious God whose character is reflected in this beautiful gem that is our sanctification and salvation. With all these different facets, they further describe sanctification in a clear light. And we should just wonder at God's beauty, how there's symmetry and rhythm to all of it, just like a diamond. It ought to cause us to worship Him. Second, it should cause us to be thankful for the many men and the many centuries that it took to look at all those facets of that diamond and put them together in something that makes sense, a big picture for us. I know I'm so thankful for the shoulders of the men that I stand on as I contemplate these things. But the reasons I took you through that little framework was so you'd have more clarity on the subject. It helps us as we read Scripture and we see the word sanctification, we know all the different facets that it could be referring to. We're not going to get confused and think that we've already been perfected in some practical sense. The phrase, you've been perfected or you've been sanctified for all time, does not mean that you won't sin anymore. That's something that has been confused in the past. So this helps you understand the distinctions and the categories of sanctification. And now, as I talk about the sanctifying ministry to the believer, we can have some clarity on the subject. Yes, the Spirit is the regenerating agent in people's hearts that brings about that past positional justification of the believer. And He is the agent that at the end of time, He will perfect our sanctification at the coming of Christ and we're glorified with Him. But what we're spending our time on today, talking about today, is what most people are referring to when they talk about sanctification and that's the present continuation progression in sanctification unto greater obedience and submission to God's Word. Or in short, progressive sanctification. The Spirit is the divine agent working in us as our helper, as our advocate to sanctify us. As I quoted from Van Maastricht last week, the Spirit is called the paraclete which refers to, and I quote, one who takes up the cause of another, and indeed for his benefit, to stir up the lazy and to drive on the sluggish. The Spirit takes up our cause, our sanctification, for our benefit. He stirs us on. He provokes us towards greater and greater holiness. God gave us the Spirit to work out sanctification in us, and we would do well to depend on our divine helper to accomplish this work. And dependence upon our divine helper, as Josh drove the point home so well a couple of weeks ago, that does not mean let go and let God. That Keswick theology, right? It does not mean let go and let God. We do have a part in it. We are called to work out our sanctification. Philippians 2.12, we are called to strive for sanctification. 
But the Spirit is the agent that is working within us to bring all of this about. A.H. Strong put it this way. He said, and I quote, Sanctification is not a matter of course, which will go on whatever we do or do not do. That's that letting go and letting God. It requires, he says, a direct superintendence and surgery on the one hand, that's the Spirit's work, and on the other hand, a practical hatred of evil on our part. So we have to strive for it. We have to have a hatred of evil to put it to death. It's not just letting go. It's the Spirit working in us as we strive and work out our own salvation. We are working and the Spirit is working in us. Now just to illustrate this, how does this work? People get uh, a little confused about this and they get frustrated and say, how does this work? Well, in a sense, it's, it's a bit of a mystery to us. But here's an illustration just to help you wrap your mind around it. One of my kids, when and I, I think I've used this illustration before. I can't remember if I've used it in here. If I have, forgive me. But for the new people, it's new to you. Uh, but my kids, as my kids were growing up, you know, they have the car seats that they can't get in and buckle themselves. And one of my kids was climbing in the car seat. And as they do when they're being compliant, they get in and they start putting the straps on themselves uh, and they start trying to buckle themselves up. And my daughter was able to get one of those buckles in and she did the middle buckle and then she was trying to get that last buckle in. But as you know, they're, they get, they're pretty tight to hold them in so they don't fly out. And as she was striving to buckle that last buckle in there, she couldn't get it. And so as I was staying there, I just reached over and grabbed her hand and pushed. And it snapped right into place. And as soon as that happened, she looked up at me and she said, Daddy, I did it! <laughs> now, is it wrong for her to say that she did it? I mean, it'd be wrong for her to say that she did it if she was just sitting there, you know, while I'm putting the straps on and putting the buckle in. Or it'd be wrong for her to say that she did it in her own strength. But is it wrong for her to say that she was striving and doing it? And that's similar to our sanctification. We've been regenerated. We now can strive spiritually. But we need the strength of the Spirit or we will fail miserably. We can't do it on our own. We need to depend on the Spirit to work in us while striving with all of our might. But we have to remember, none of the strength is within us. It's not that we have some strength and we need the Spirit's help. Apart from the Spirit, we don't have any strength. So we have to totally depend upon the Spirit. But how do we know we're depending on the Spirit? A good indicator that you are depending on the Spirit is if you are crying out to Him for help and giving Him credit for everything. Like the psalmist in Psalm 119, 9-10, he says, How can a young man keep his way pure? by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. This is a very, uh, just a wonderful passage of Scripture. I actually just recently uh, edited Travis when he was teaching through Psalm 119, edited this section of Scripture. It's so helpful. Uh, if you go back, it should be airing on the radio in a few weeks, but so helpful for, uh, for this 
even thinking through sanctification. So if you have a chance to listen to that, do that. But the psalmist, he says he's seeking with his whole heart. And at the same time, he's crying out to God. He says, let me not wander from your commandments. I'm striving to seeking after you, seeking obedience with my whole heart. Yet, Lord, let me not wander. Give me the strength to obey. So dependence looks like crying out to God for help as you keep his word, as you begin to have victory in your life because you are trusting in him. It's okay to be excited that you're having victory over sin, but as you, like my daughter did, proclaim victory with the same breath, Just make sure you are thanking God for bringing that victory about in you. Remember, it is all because of His grace and power in your life and nothing of yourself. So the Holy Spirit is the agent working as the emissary of Christ on our behalf for our benefit to sanctify us. But He also uses an ordinary means to work out our sanctification. And the ordinary means that the Spirit uses to work out our sanctification is what? The Word of God. Just as we talked about last week, His illuminating ministry, His leading us into all truth, the means that He does that is by the Word of God. So is the means of Him working out our sanctification. Go with me over to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Where Peter talks about not only the Word of God being the means of our salvation, but also the san- our sanctification. Also, John 17, 17 says, while you're turning there, your word, this is Jesus in his prayer for the disciples in chapter 17, your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. It's the truth that we're going to be sanctified in. The instrument or the means that the Spirit uses 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 22. Peter says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass, The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. And Peter continues into chapter 2. He says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So Peter recognizes that they were born again, not of perishable seed, but the living and abiding word of God. And then the second chapter, he says, like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk. And I like the the NASB translation of that a little bit better. It says the pure milk of the word, because it is in the Greek, it's a clear reference back to that same word that he was talking about earlier, the word of God. So it is the milk of the word that the Spirit is going to use to sanctify us, that we're going to grow up into salvation. The same word that the Spirit uses to regenerate spiritually dead people 
to likewise affect the growth and the sanctification in God's people. And we're here encouraged in the book of Peter to drink it in like newborn babies. Every couple hours, soak it in, get all we can get. So we have the nutrients needed to grow up into salvation or be sanctified. The Word is the means that the Spirit uses to inform our intellect, to inform our will and our desires unto sanctification. So we've got to get it into us. But I talked more extensively about that last time. I won't berate you guys on that. We've got to get it into us if we want the nutrients that the Spirit uses to grow us. The other analogy that the Scriptures use of the means of Scripture being used to sanctify us is that the Scriptures are a mirror. James says in chapter 1 that the Word of God is the perfect law of the Lord. It reveals the perfect standard of God. And as we, as wretched sinners, we look into that mirror and we see the perfect standard of God, we see how far short we fall. As we read the Scriptures, the Spirit uses that to convict us and provoke us to change. And if we don't take time to look into that mirror, we're not going to see all the things that we need to change about ourselves. We're not going to see the holy, perfect standard of God, His character, and how we need to conform ourselves to it. We're just going to go on continuing to be our ugly selves and not want to change anything about us because we don't see a better standard. So the Spirit uses the Scriptures as a mirror to reveal sin to us, to convict us. And it's that same word that He's going to use to help us repent of those things. But another analogy was used by A.H. Strong. He used the analogy of a tree. In the, the middle of winter, there's some leaves that continue to cling to the tree. And he uses this analogy, he puts it this way, he says, and I quote, As the ascending sap in the trees crowds off the dead leaves, which in spite of storms and frost cling to the branches all winter long, so does the Holy Spirit within us subdue and expel the dead remnants of our sinful nature. And when I looked into this analogy, just to see the science behind it and the scientific veracity of it, it only got more interesting. Strong systematic theology was first published in 1907, so he would have had none of the idea of the cellular reality of what was going on, but he was close. But it's not properly speaking the sap that pushes or crowds off the leaves. Rather, it's the sap coming up from the roots, flowing out to the various branches where those dead leaves are. This delivers these little cells that are shaped like scissors that cut away at the leaves that have not fallen off in the winter. It's quite the amazing design that God has created there. For if those leaves don't come off, it's going to stunt or prevent new growth at all. So God has designed it so the leaves that don't fall off, the sap carries these little scissor-like cells that slowly cut away to cut the leaves, the dead leaves, off of the trees. So, it is the work of the Spirit 
changing Strong's analogy a little bit, it's the work of the Spirit using the Word of God, delivering it to our various members to cut off the dead sinful works and promote new growth so new fruit can grow there. And the more of God's Word that you take in, the more that you're in it, it's like delivering more scissor cells to those dead works providing more nutrients that the Spirit can then use to produce fruit in you. And so coming to church once a week, that's the only time you get into God's Word, then you will mortify sin and you will grow in proportion to that. Just like only eating once a week, you'll be malnourished. But if you're reading on God's Word, if you're meditating regularly on it, just like you eat every day, You'll be pruned. Think of John 15, where Jesus promises that we're going to be pruned to bear new fruit. We're going to be pruned by the Word of God, making way for new growth. So we must strive for our sanctification while depending totally on the Holy Spirit to empower us to do it. We have to hate sin. We have to work to mortify it, to put it to death in us knowing that it is the surgery of the Holy Spirit cutting out the old and allowing new growth to form in us. And the only means by which God has designed for all of this to take place is the nutrients of God's Word. We need to trust in that design that He's given us. We want to be sanctified. That's how it's going to happen. We have to trust in that. Not, not human philosophies or methods. Trusting in God's Word to do what it has promised to do. So that's how sanctification works. Now I just want to make some applications on this point. Application number one. What do we do with this information? The ministry of the Spirit's sanctification to us. What do we do? Application number one. We pray. That's obvious. We pray for the strength in this battle. We pray for motivation to be in God's Word more. We pray that the Spirit would prune us, that He would work in us. We depend on Him. We pray, 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 just as the psalmist did in Psalm 119. Application number two, take in God's Word. And I, like I said, I don't want to belabor this point. I've spent a lot of time talking about it last week and this week. But the means of our sanctification is not our work. It is the Word of God. And working hard at sanctification without taking in God's Word is like running a marathon while you're malnourished. You're doomed to fatigue and failure and disappointment. Yes, work hard, but if you don't have the nutrients to do it, you're toast. You've got to be taking in God's Word so you have the nutrients to, and the strength to fight and mortify sin. Application number three. Take the log out of your own eye first. My wife, she really needs to work on this. My husband, she really, he really needs to work on this. Whoever it is, we tend to point the finger at somebody else when we feel conviction. We should first think and pray. We've got to take the log out of our own eye first. We should think as the psalmist in Psalm 139, 23 to 24, Search me, O God. And know my heart. 
Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We ought to be introspective first. We should ask God to search us if our sin isn't obvious to us. And as we pray and we read Scripture throughout the day, when we sit down to do devotions, we ought to be asking questions like, am I conforming to the image of God in this way as we read things in the text? Am I loving my wife the way God has called me to? Am I leading my kids the way the Word of God is calling me to? We've got to be introspective. I think many people, they read God's Word, they come to church, but they don't think deeply about when they are convicted, how to work out repentance. Maybe they feel convicted for a couple weeks. That feeling might prevent them from doing that sin again. But after a couple weeks, the sermon's a few weeks past, it wears off and they just go back to sinning again. They don't do anything beyond feeling that initial conviction. They don't do anything beyond that. And that leads to application number four. We have to make a plan. Make a sanctification plan. We have to make a plan to change. The Spirit is working in us, but we have to work. We have to make a plan. Once God reveals a plank in our eye, we have to make a plan to get it out. Not just hope. By some miraculous way, the Spirit's going to remove it. We have to make a plan. We have to make a strategic plan of attack to mortify sin, to kill it for the enemy that it is. And then we have to make a defense plan for the next time that it shows up to fight it off. We, as Christians are in a war with sin. We're not primarily in a war with other people in our country. Different factions in our country trying to destroy it. We're not in a war with them. We're in a war with sin. And if you aren't making battle plans, you're leaving the house unlocked, knowing that the thief and the murderer and the enemy is on his way. What do you do when you know you're going to be attacked? You begin to make preparations. If you've got a property, maybe you build a wall around your property. You put barbed wire on top of that wall. You put bars on the windows. You set up a security system to inform you when intruders approach. And you make sure, of course, as Coloradoans, you make sure you have plenty of ammo for the enemies who get over the wall. Make sure you're loaded for bear, Right? We've got to think that way when it comes to sin. But what does that actually look like? Let's use the sin of anxiety and worry as an example. Something that probably 80% of people struggle with on a regular basis. Anxiety and worry. If the sin of anxiety and worry besets you, you build barriers to keep it away. What are those barriers? Those barriers are, for one thing, theology. Understanding That God is sovereign over all things. You study who God is. The good God that He is. That He's working all things together for His plan, for His glory, and for the good of those who love Him. You memorize Scripture. And not just the Scriptures that tell you to not be anxious. It doesn't do any good to sit there and think, don't be anxious, don't be anxious. That's not going to help, right? We've all been there. You memorize scriptures that teach and remind us of God's sovereign care for us. Like Psalm 23. 
The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And later, he, you see the Lord barring his enemies, protecting him from his enemies. You memorize scripture that you can rehearse over and over in your mind. Those are the barriers that keep, that keep the enemy away. Scriptures like Luke 12, 22-34 that talks about not being anxious because God knows you need food and clothes. And more than that, He desires to give you the kingdom. So you memorize these scriptures and you build these barriers to keep the enemy at bay. But then you keep your gun loaded so when the enemy makes it over the walls, you can fill them with bullets. And those bullets, or you might think of them as sword thrusts from the Word of God, that is you rehearsing counseling yourself, reminding yourself over and over and over again, fear not. It is your Father's goodwill to give you the kingdom. Sword thrust after sword thrust, just reminding yourself of that. If He cares for the birds, how much more will He care for me? Bullet after bullet, sword thrust after sword thrust, reminding yourself of the truth to fight back that enemy. And whatever sin it is, you have to come up with a specific battle plan. These verses are not going to help you fight lust or anger or whatever else it might be. So you have to think through, okay, what's the battle plan for this sin to keep this sin out? Walls don't keep aerial enemies away. It takes work on our part. I think so many of us just come to church and we feel convicted and we go home. We don't put a battle plan together. We just hope that the Spirit works in us. We've got to think about what we are struggling with and make a plan to fight it. But if you don't have a plan, if you aren't armed with God's word, you are defenseless. So make a plan. Application number five, take the speck out of your brother's eye. Take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 5, first take the speck out of your own eye. And then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So it is your responsibility to take the speck out of your brother's eye, to involve yourself in other people's sanctification. And just think of it in the same analogy that we're just using. Somebody who's barricading their property, they've got walls, the enemy's coming to attack them. Think of someone, the same analogy, a young believer, for example, they haven't had time to build up those walls. Maybe their walls only got one layer. It's this tall. They don't have a lot of ammunition memorized to fight off the enemy. And when they are overrun, are you just going to stand by and watch while they're overcome? Contrary to what our society says, just letting somebody wallow in their sin, that is not love. That is hatred. If you saw a brother being attacked, being overwhelmed by the enemy, would you just sit there? You know, that's often what we do when we see other people struggling with sin. Get in there and help. Maybe someone who has been a believer for a long time. Are you going to stand back and watch them as they're overwhelmed with sin? Because after all, they've had plenty of time to build the wall. It's their fault. I'm not going to go in there and get messy. They've been a Christian just as long as me. They should have had the wall built. 
They shouldn't be struggling with this by now. But if we think of it in the same analogy, that's heartless. We've got to involve ourselves in helping one another with the enemy. Galatians 6.1, this is the CSB version. It says, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, you think you're spiritual, this is what you do. Restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourself so that you won't be tempted. Paul is saying here, when you see your brother overtaken, overrun, strap on your armor, strap on your sword, and get over there to help him overcome the enemy. Help him fight off the enemy. Help your brother. Don't stand back and watch while he's devoured. You help him fight off the enemy. You teach him how to build the wall. Give him some more ammunition. But we do this all with a spirit of gentleness and patience. Because as we're doing this, our analogy is not perfect, because as we're doing this, as we're taking the Word of God, the sword of the Lord to attack sin, the sin's in the other person. And they often have the tendency to think you're attacking them. That's why this verse in Galatians is so important. We have to do it with all gentleness, with all patience. But we have to do it. And so just a clarification on what you want to try and pick out of your brother's eye. We want to keep in balance two things. The fact that love covers over a multitude of sins and that we have to confront sin. Love covers over a multitude of sins and we have to confront sin. This doesn't mean that we have to confront our spouse or friend when they uncharacteristically lose their patience and say something harsh. You shouldn't go to your husband or your wife and say, honey, this is the third time in 10 years you've done this. I've had enough. Love covers over a multitude of sins, but if it becomes a pattern in someone's life, they're regularly overrun by sin, jump in there and help them fight it. Application number six. Application number six. Remember you aren't the agent of other people's sanctification. The Holy Spirit is the agent of other people's sanctification. You are not. You can come alongside them, but if they don't want your help or refuse to listen, you can't make them change. But if they are Christians, you can appeal to the one who is the agent of their sanctification. Pray for them. Appeal to the Holy Spirit to convict them. This is particularly helpful in marriage when the other person refuses to see their sin. You want to make them change because you have to live with them? But you don't have that power. So pray for them. Appeal to the one that can convict their heart. And if they're a believer, over time, they'll change. They'll confront, conform to the image of Christ more and more. But continue to lovingly confront them. But if the practice persists and no repentance is there, that's when you seek help from another church member. Continue that process of church discipline. So we've seen last week, we saw the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, saw the sanctifying ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now briefly, let's look at the comforting ministry of the Holy Spirit. The comforting ministry of the Holy Spirit to believers. Go to Romans chapter 8. 
Romans chapter 8. And while you're going there, I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4. This is a very familiar passage. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. Quoting from Van Maastricht again, the paraclete is one who takes up the cause of another and indeed for his benefit, he says, to lift up the soul in adverse circumstances. End quote. In painful, hard circumstances, the Spirit lifts up our soul. Because God is the God of all comfort, he has given us his Spirit to comfort us, to lift up our soul in painful circumstances. Romans 8, look at verses 12 to 16. Verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So this comes on the heels following chapter 7, where Paul is discussing his struggle with sin. Entering into chapter 8, where he talks about there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He says, if you're walking according to the Spirit, if you're not enslaved to sin, the Spirit comforts you by testifying with your spirit that you are one of His children especially after falling into sin, recognizing our offense against a holy God, feeling godly remorse under repentance, this comfort that the Spirit gives us, that we are one of His, is so wonderful, is it not? There's such a wonderful ministry of the Spirit to comfort us after we've sinned and recognized that and turned from it. The Spirit comforts us by reminding us, again, he uses the word of God as a means to do this, but he comforts us. He reminds us that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That we're united to Christ and his righteousness and that God sees us as his perfect son. But listen, if you don't know those verses, they aren't a comfort to you. You have to know them. And the more scriptures you learn and memorize, the more that the Spirit will comfort you with them, encourage you by them. So again, fill your mind with them. The Spirit will use them to comfort you, to encourage you. Continue regularly to dwell on gospel truths, not so much stuff of the world that's discouraging and disappointing. Don't dwell on that. Dwell on gospel truths. That you've been forgiven of sin. That you have an eternal home. 
that will be governed by a good king for all eternity. That the worst anyone can do to you on this earth is take your life. And then you're in the presence of Christ. When you miss loved ones, gone to heaven, you don't grieve as the world grieves. Because we're comforted by the fact that one day we'll spend all eternity with Christ. And they'll be there too. And even those you miss on this earth that you long to be with, what a comfort it is to know that we have all eternity. To hear how God has worked in their life. We can be comforted to know that though great injustice is often done on this earth, and I think as Christians we're going to grow increasingly familiar with injustice, though great injustice is done on this earth, God will one day execute perfect judgment on all evildoers. But it's only if we memorize and study and know those truths does the Spirit comfort us by them. So like the teaching and illuminating ministry of the Spirit and the sanctifying ministry of the Spirit, so too the comforting and encouraging ministry of the Spirit, the means of that ministry comes through God's Word. The Word of God is the means by which we are comforted. And just with a few minutes we have left, let's make just a couple, not six again, just a couple application points from the Spirit's comforting ministry to us. And the first two are very familiar. Number one, again, pray. Pray not only for your own encouragement and comfort, but others as well. Number two, take in God's Word. It's the means by which the Spirit will comfort you. And application number three, this is coming out of the verse in Corinthians that I read. Be you, as a believer, be the instrument that delivers comfort and encouragement that you were comforted with. In other words, God comforted you. You have learned scripture in order that you might be able to comfort other people with it. You be the instrument that the Spirit will use to deliver God's comforting words that the Spirit will then use in their hearts to comfort them. But how many times, I'm, I'm really bad at this, how many times have you talked to someone who was discouraged Going through a trial, this person tells you that they're discouraged and our only consolation is, I'll pray for you. Don't get me wrong, you should pray for them. But praying for their encouragement and their comfort and then not actually finding a scripture you know is there to comfort them, it's very mystical to think that the Spirit's just going to comfort them mystically. You give them a scripture that the Spirit of God will use to comfort their heart. We have a whole book full of them. We have a whole book full of remedies to salve the pain that Christians are in. Don't offer prayer and do nothing about it. And when you're discouraged yourself and need comfort, that's where you're going to find it. I know it's hard work to find verses to encourage or comfort someone else but it's not compassionate and loving to pray without applying ointment to the problem. Yes, pray, pray, pray that the Spirit would supernaturally affect the ointment that you apply to the problem, the verse that you give that person. Pray that the Spirit would use that to comfort them. 
but offer more than the mere platitudes that the world does, you're in my prayers. You have been comforted by God's word, so comfort and encourage others with it. So as we've seen, from regeneration to glorification, the Spirit is at work in every aspect of our lives. He's the power energizing everything we do, affecting anything good in us. And so while we might not talk about the Holy Spirit a lot, it's not because we think little of Him. He's our helper. He's our advocate. Without Him, we're nothing. Without Him, we are hopeless and helpless. The Spirit is empowering us energizing us to learn, to be sanctified for everything regarding the Christian life. May we cry out to our agent, to our helper that God has given us. And may we surrender our wills more and more to him every day, all to the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Our good and gracious God, you have withhold no spiritual blessing from us. You have given us your very spirit to do the work in us that you have desired for the ultimate outcome of our glorification. Help us, give us the desire to be in your word and then give us, provoke us to put a battle plan together for our sin, to help other people in sin, to use your word, not mere platitudes to comfort people, but your word. May we just be better students of your word, Lord. Seek you as the psalmist of Psalm 119 says. And would you give us the strength to obey. Amen.